0: I was with me to First Corinthians chapter twelve. And as I mentioned, we begin this exploration of the subject of spiritual gifts. It's a new topic for us. It's a new section within the book of Corinthians. And what we look at today in chapter twelve, verse one will take us all the way to the end of chapter fourteen. So it is a lengthy and an extensive Discourse on spiritual gifts, and the reason that it is so lengthy is because of how desperately the Corinthian church needed to hear the corrective measures from Paul. And helping them to move away from where they were to where they needed to be in their walk with the Lord. So Paul is continuing to deal with issues as it relates to their worship experience. They didn't have a building of size where 50, 60, or 100 people could gather together. They've for the most part, met in houses or in larger rooms like that. And so in each of these worship experiences, there was dysfunction. And Paul is continuously addressing this in his letter to them. So he has just dealt with their abuse of the Lord's Supper, how they were filling themselves and neglecting those who were in need of food, how they were drinking themselves into drunkenness, completely losing the purpose of the Lord's Supper, commemorating, celebrating the Lord's death until he returns again. And so here he begins to deal with the issue of spiritual gifts, and most specifically, this is going to be applied to the gift of tongues or what is also called spiritual utterances, or inspired utterances, and that is a lengthy discussion in itself. But this is the main issue that Paul wants to address because of how poorly it was used and applied within the life of the church, how inadequately it was understood by those who profess to have this gift. But there are several important things that we need to look at that will help us in understanding this course of study a little bit better as we go through this. It's often good for us to be reminded that when we're looking at a book of the Bible, it is a continuous Revelation to us. It is improper to take a verse or a passage out of the context of the entirety of the book itself. So in this regard, it's helpful for us to understand some of what Paul has already said and how he is going to apply this to the lives of the Corinthian church. In the issue of spiritual gifts. So Paul began all the way back in chapter 1, many, many weeks ago. He began his letter by acknowledging some of the blessedness that the Corinthian church had experienced. And he would say this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4-7. through I thank my God always concerning you. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech, and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you probably don't remember, which is why I remind you of these things, but in these few verses, Paul is identifying the four central themes, or three of the four themes that he is going to outline throughout the entirety of the book of Corinthians. So when Paul says these words to the church in Corinth, it's more than just an acknowledgement of their salvation. It's more than just an acknowledgement of the giftedness that they profess to have and that he perhaps had even heard from first-hand accounts. Paul was identifying these themes that are problematic to them that he is going to address throughout the letter. So knowledge and speech were two of the most prized gifts or abilities within the Greek culture. And the Corinthians were quite proud of themselves in this regard, considering themselves to be quite gifted. So likely when Paul says these words... They pat themselves on the back. Yes, we're so knowledgeable and we are so gifted. We are great orators and you would be blessed to hear how eloquently we can tell the truth or, most accurately, how we can destroy other people in our church by trying to prove what they believe to be false. So Paul dealt extensively with the problem of their perceived giftedness as he addressed the division caused by their adoption of worldly wisdom and worldly philosophy. If you remember, there were at least 50 different identifiable Greek training, Greek strains of thought or truth at this time, and each of these were being argued within the church vying for supremacy and that created a lot of conflict and a lot of division. So they considered their knowledge to be a supreme gift as well as their ability to articulate why their beliefs were superior to the belief systems of other people. Their alleged gift of knowledge and speech was central in contributing to the division that they experienced as a church. And fast forward now into chapter 12, and we can see how this same perceived giftedness is contributing to the the division that is tearing their church apart. So they were always most interested in the gifts that they believed were superior or of a higher value which will affect their pursuit of spiritual gifts, most specifically the gift of tongues or the gift of inspired utterances. I have met people in my journey amongst many churches over some 30 years who would never ever consider exercising a gift of service by taking a rotation in the nursery. But buddy, if they're going to be on the personnel team or on the finance team or on the leadership team, they want to sign up, they want to be first in line. Because why? It is perceived to be of higher value than those trivial little things like working in the nursery and taking care of the kids. Another important element to note is that Paul is doing more correcting then he is instructing on the subject of spiritual gifts. It isn't like they don't have any idea of what spiritual gifts are. It is their execution of spiritual gifts in tongues or inspired utterances to the neglect of all the other gifts to the extent that they believe that they are superior Christians because they consider themselves to have this superior gift. Now, there are elements of instruction and information in these three chapters, but they are framed in... ...in the context of correcting the improper understanding and the improper expression of spiritual gifts. For example, in chapter 12, he's going to identify the importance of all gifts, not just the speech gifts... That they valued so highly. So it's not uncommon for people within the church today to say, boy, I wish I could teach like that guy teaches or I could share my faith like that person shares their faith or some other public visible gift. They esteem those To the extent that they neglect the others because they consider them to be of inferiority to these public visible gifts. So in chapter 12, Paul will use as an analogy various parts of the body and how dependent the body is upon these seemingly less important parts. And you're familiar with this passage of scripture. So in this, he stresses unity amongst great diversity. In chapter 13, Paul emphasizes the importance of what? Chapter 13, 1 Corinthians? Love. He stresses the importance of love in the usage of the gifts most highly prized amongst them. He'll go through a lengthy contrast and explanation of love to demonstrate its importance above all other perceived valuable gifts. In chapter 14, he will forcefully correct the improper usage of tongues or inspired utterances within the worship service, but he's going to build upon that attack, if you will, in chapters 12 and 13. He'll build his argument against the way they're using the gift of tongues and other gifts that are being used in the corporate worship service. So the topic of spiritual gifts as a whole is incredible important within the life of the church. Here's what John MacArthur says and I quote Perhaps no area of biblical doctrine has been more misunderstood and abused even within evangelicalism, than that of spiritual gifts. Yet no area of doctrine is more important to the spiritual health and effectiveness of the church. Apart from the direct energizing of God's Spirit, nothing is more vital to believers than the ministry of their spiritual gifts, their God-given endowments for Christian service." I would present to you that the average Christian gives little to no thought about their own spiritual gift but probably benefits from the usage of spiritual gifts expressed within the church they worship in as it directly relates to to them. So as an example, no person or some some people may never consider their giftedness being used in a nursery or in a children's Sunday school or out there mowing the grass or in some other mundane need within the church. But they are the recipients of the blessing of others who use that gift, who are taking care of their children, who are teaching their children, who are taking care of the property, or taking care of the finances, or who are instructing them in the truths of God's Word. I enjoy what I receive, but I don't give any thought to what I might contribute back to the church in the exercise of my spiritual gift. Have you ever heard about the 80-20 rule? Have you ever heard that expressed in the life of the church? Well, no pastor, I've never heard of it before. Let me tell you what that is. The 80-20 rule is this. 80% of the work in the church is being done by 20% of the people. Wait a minute. Is that true? Is that accurate? In every church I've been in, there's been some disparity in the percentages of the number of people doing the work as compared to the amount of the work that needed to be done. I have never, ever, ever witnessed in my life, ever in the church, a waiting list to work in the nursery or to teach a Sunday school class or to be a part of some ministry team that is necessary in the life of the ministries of the church. Never seen a waiting list, ever. But what I have seen is these guilt-ridden pleas Please, please help. These poor little lovable children need someone to shepherd them and encourage them and help them. And by the end of the thing you're going, oh my gosh, how could I not do such a thing? And two weeks later you're going, I gotta get out, I gotta get out. <laughs> the 80-20 rule is the disparity between the number of people serving and the amount of work that needs to be done. Here's what we forget. The church is a living organism created by Christ Himself. It has a spiritual body with Christ as the head. And true believers, true believers are the ones who comprise This spiritual body, every member of Christ Church has been given supernatural endowments, gifts of God's Holy Spirit, which, through the Spirit, are God's divine means of ministering His Word and power among His people and to the world. You'll let me say that a different way. God gave every believer spiritual gifts to be used in service to Him, and you just don't go and hire a bunch of people to do all the work. Why? Because God has gifted every believer to serve Him as His Spirit has divinely enabled us to serve Him. These gifts are God's supernatural provision for the edification of the church and for the evangelization of the world. Period. That's what they're for. They are the means through which believers are to grow and worship and witness and serve. Apart from the usage and the execution of individual spiritual gifts, the church will not and it cannot exist. It just can't. True spiritual gifts are given by God to strengthen and And manifest oneness and harmony and power in the church. This was the expectation for the church at Corinth. It's the expectation for the church here today. And it will be the expectation for the church as long as the church exists. Now, as were most things in the Corinthian experience, the use of these gifts was causing disruption and confusion and division within the church. So this is clearly not God's intent, but the result, since we are stricken with such great frailty, Satan can deceive us and lead us into improper usage of these gifts, bringing confusion and division not... Unity and harmony. And if you don't think that our enemy Satan is somehow involved in the misuse or the misunderstanding of spiritual gifts, you are not a reasonable individual to think that he is not all over that. Why? Because Satan is all over anything and everything that will be a deterrent... To God's work, whether it be in the church, in the family, in the unit, excuse me, in the community, in the cultural ideals, Satan attacks everything, everywhere in order to drag the work of God down in hopes that it will be stalled in its tracks. Well, Jesus said that I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But you and I are the agents that God has entrusted and empowered the work of the church to be executed through. And this is why John MacArthur, along with other pastors, would say spiritual gifts is an incredibly important thing within the life of the church. Now that's all the introduction. Let's look at these three verses which surprisingly require quite a bit of explanation. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to look at number one in our outline, and that is the principle. So when we look at these chapter, when we look at this chapter as a whole, and even the three chapters that contain all the discussion in 1 Corinthians on spiritual gifts, these first three verses can seem disjointed or out of place, and perhaps unrelated to the topic of spiritual gifts as a whole. Perhaps there was a tear in the fragment of the manuscript, and a fragment was added somewhere, and it just was kind of a mistake. Well, people have thought such a thing, but it isn't true. Paul is setting forth the principle of why he is going to say what he is going to say in these three chapters. His initial concern is to set their former experience as idolaters in contrast with their present experience as Christians who, quote, speak. By the Spirit of God. We're going to look at this in three very easy points, which really aren't so easy to explain because there's some ambiguity in the terms. There's some, uh, there's a lack of clarity and specifics with culture and what exactly took place. But I'll try to consolidate the the thinking as best I can as we look at these three verses in three points. Number one, Paul begins by saying, this is important. This isn't an oh, yeah, by the way, kind of a thing. This is, hey, you got to pay attention to this. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. I do not want you to be unaware. That phrase, now concerning, again, highlights a new section of teaching. This was introduced in chapter 7, and I think this is the third time that Paul has used this phrase to signal both its importance and a change of subject matter. So this is probably in response to something that they wanted clarity on when they wrote a letter to Paul. Now, by way of reminder... Paul wrote them a letter, we don't have a copy of that letter. They wrote a letter back to Paul, which we don't have a copy of, so we don't know what that ex- that exact dialogue exchange was. And so 1 Corinthians is now the response to that letter that they wrote to him. So, they have written something to him, and he is probably now responding to that. So, now concerning... Is an indication that there's a change of subject probably, excuse me, probably related to something that they've asked about. And then he uses the word spiritual or spiritual gifts and that introduces us to the topic. Now you'll notice in your translation that the word gifts is italicized. The reason that the word is italicized is because it is being supplied by commentators ...who intend to communicate what is implied in the Greek, but is not specifically said in the Greek. So the word in the Greek means spirituals or spiritualities, referring to that which has spiritual qualities or characteristics or is under spiritual control. So some interpreters have taken it referred to spiritual persons in contrast to the unspiritual and carnal ones that Paul has spent so much time talking about. Now this is possible and it could correctly be applied But the context makes it clear that the reference of this passage and these three chapters is the spiritual thing, specifically spiritual gifts. You'll note, looking at verse 4, you'll see the same word spirituals or spiritual gifts. Verse 9, verse 28, verses 30 and 31, and then if you were to fast forward to chapter 14, verse 1, you see the exact same word where it could not possibly refer to persons. So this is important because it helps us identify what it is Paul is talking about. Not unspiritual people or spiritual people, but spiritual things, specifically spiritual gifts. Now Paul does not want them to be unaware of Or another way of saying that, to be ignorant of the importance of these spiritual gifts. Since these gifts are given by God, listen, since these gifts are given by God, they demonstrate the work of the Spirit in the lives of God's children, the body of Christ. So a very rudimentary definition of spiritual gifts can go like this. And I'll repeat this and say it slowly, because some of you like to write this down. It is the divine enablement. The divine enablement for ministry or service. The divine enablement for ministry or service to God to build up His church. The divine enablement for ministry or service to God to build up His church. Now let me back up as you're finishing writing down that definition. Since spiritual gifts are given by God, they demonstrate the work of the Spirit in the lives of God's children, the body of Christ. So if these gifts are given by God to demonstrate the work of the Spirit in God's children... What happens when these spiritual gifts are misunderstood or misapplied? Have you ever wondered why someone could think such a thing and say that it's what the Bible says? Or they could do such a thing because they've been given permission to do that in the Bible? Well, it's because the work of the Spirit is used to build us up in the things of God. And when people misappropriate or misunderstand spiritual gifts, it means we're going to have a misappropriation, a misapplication, a misunderstanding of the work of the Spirit in the church. I'll give you an example. Many years ago when I was a new Christian, I was in a part of the country where the charismatic influence was pretty strong. There were a number of charismatic churches within the community. There was even a seminary within the community that I lived in. And so there were charismatic influences all around our community. So it wasn't uncommon within the charismatic movement in that area that I was in that there would be these fads that would come into play that would be understood as a confirmation of or a manifestation of God's Spirit at work within them. So here's the example. And I'm not making this up. This is actual. (laughs) The pastor, or the pastor's leaders, whoever they were, came to the conclusion that laughter was a sign of... The spirit at work within the church. And so the pastor, when he got hold of that, believed that, was told that, whatever happened, I don't know the details, when he believed that to be true, he would be preaching and he would just laugh. me <laughs> <laughs> talk a little more. And he would begin to laugh. And then he had his people in the front rows who would start laughing when they heard him laugh. And pretty soon the expectation was that If you were filled with the Spirit, or if you were experiencing a manifestation of the Spirit, you would join the pastor and the leaders in this laughter. And so what would happen after a few minutes is the entirety of the congregation would be erupting in laughter, some of them rolling on the ground, holding their bellies, rolling back and forth, and to them it was proof that the Spirit of God was at work. Now that's one of the most ridiculous things I think I've ever heard in my life. How does that manifest the work of God's Spirit in the lives of His people? Well, I mean, what does it possibly do? Well, I know a merry heart does good. and. People believe that laughter is the best medicine, okay. But how does that prove a manifestation of the Holy Spirit? This is why Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware of the importance of a proper understanding and application of spiritual gifts because a misunderstanding and a misapplication is going to create even more problems within the church. And oh, by the way, this is exactly what was taking place Within the church. One more time, a rudimentary definition of spiritual gifts. The divine enablement for ministry or service to God to build up His church. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints. For what purpose? For the work of service For what purpose? To the building up of the body of Christ. For how long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of all, excuse me, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is another way of Paul saying God has given these divine enablements for these specific purposes for our maturity in our faith and in our walk with Christ. To misunderstand or to misuse these gifts is then to misunderstand or misapply the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. This is Paul's concern. It is the usage of gifts because they're being misused and misapplied creating an inaccurate picture of of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of believers. Now let's say, for example, that you were at this charismatic church and a vast majority of the church was on the ground rolling around with belly-busting laughter and you were sitting there going, I don't understand what's going on. Why don't I have this thing of laughter? Why am I not reacting this way? Do I not have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Am I not experiencing a manifestation of the Spirit? Am I not indwelt by the Spirit? Am I not saved? Oh, by the way, the expectation is the manifestation of the Spirit is a confirmation of your salvation. Just as... Speaking in tongues, or performing miraculous works, or healing people, or other things. If those things become a condition of our salvation, then they are not spiritual gifts. And this is why Paul is underscoring the importance in what it is that he's about to say. Number two, consider your background. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however, you were led. So, since there were no Corinthians who grew up in a Christian home, think about that, no Corinthians who grew up in a Christian home, they were all saved out of a non Christian background. So, that term pagan can be a Jewish term that describes all non Jews, but here and in other places in the New Testament, it is a reference to those who are not Christians. Anyone who is saved out of a pagan background carries that background with them into their understanding and experiences as a Christian, and sometimes they will even carry their pagan practices into their Christianity. Now let me pause here very quickly and say this. If you grew up in a Christian home and had a a mom and a dad who did their best to exemplify what Christianity was about, you have been richly blessed. You do not carry into your Christian experience a pagan experience, ideology, background, practice, influence of any kind. For those like myself who were not raised in a Christian home, there's a lot of additional baggage that gets brought into the Christian life that I wish was not the reality, but it is. So anyone who is saved out of this non-Christian background is going to carry some of that into their current Christian understanding, experience, and perhaps even practice. This is why people who are contemplating a commitment to Christ will often give long and serious consideration to what part of their lifestyle is going to have to be left behind in order to fulfill their commitment to Christ. You can even see the wheels grinding. If I give my life to Christ, that means I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't go there and i got to stop that and I might have to do, jeez, I'm not sure. This sounds like a lot. I don't know if I, I don't know if I can do that. Other people, the need for Christ is so obvious and so overwhelming that the thought or the consideration of giving something up isn't even on their radar. They are broken. They are hopeless. They are distraught. They have come to terms with their total lostness, and they will come to Christ no matter what it takes. And then sometime later, in their progression of lordship to Christ, they recognize that there's something that they need to give up, and it can be an incredibly difficult decision to make. So we all share in this common experience, there is a lifelong task of sanctification where we participate in cleansing ourselves from the background, from our background through the truth of God's word, by the work of the spirit, as applied to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. This process of sanctification is long and arduous and many struggle with recognizing how their pre-Christian life is affecting their present Christian experience. I don't know if you've ever met a Christian who professes to love the Lord with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength, and you see the way they live your life and you go, I don't understand how that can be. How can they do these things and make this profession? It just does not come together for me in any way, shape, or form. It's perhaps because they haven't understood or realized what it is they need to do in order to fulfill their commitment to Christ. So this was virtually the experience of a majority of the Corinthian Christian. So history tells us these things, and this is a little bit difficult, uh, a lot of cutting and pasting because of the detail that's involved here, but this is what history tells us about the culture of Corinth. Pagan cults of Greece and Rome were part of what is commonly referred to as the mystery religions. By Paul's time, these mystery religions had dominated the Near Eastern world for thousands of years. So there were several several pagan practices that were especially influential in the city of Corinth at the time of Paul's writing. Perhaps the most important... And certainly the most obvious was called ecstasy. And it was considered to be the highest expression of religious experience. Have you ever heard the term ecstasy as a reference to a drug? You know why? Because it's considered to be the highest expression of human experience. Because ecstasy seemed to be supernatural and because it was dramatic, And often bizarre in its expression, the practice strongly appealed to the natural man because it gave some validity to some spiritual experience. So because the Holy Spirit had performed many miraculous works in the apostolic age, some Corinthian Christians confused those true wonders at the hands of the apostles with the false wonders that have been counterfeited in the ecstatics of paganism. So ecstasy was believed to be a supernatural, sensuous communion with a deity. Now think about this. If you live in a pluralistic, pantheistic, religious experience, and this experience of ecstasy was the best of the best, you were going to pay attention to that. It was going to be interesting and appealing, and it was likely something that you would want to experience yourself, because after all, you are a spiritual person. So often the ceremony would be preceded by vigils and fastings and would even include drunkenness, sometimes resulting in gross debauchery. So there was meditation on sacred objects. There were whirling dances. Have you heard of whirling dervishes? That's where this comes from. It's a part of the ecstatic religious movement. There were chants and other physical and psychological stimuli. Customarily, they were used to induce this ecstasy, which would be in the form of an out-of-body trance. This was the proof that you had experienced ecstasy, is that by your own evaluation you would experienced an out-of-body trance. So this was the ultimate pagan religious experience and a similar form of mystical experience was called enthusiasm enthusiasm was distinct from ecstasy but was often accompanied by it so enthusiasm involved sibyllic formulas divination and revel- revelatory dreams and visions so this sibyllic formula would be this would be like saying Umba wah wah wah, um ba wah wah umba wa 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 or something else over and over and over and over, and it could be basically anything, but it was something that was used with great enthusiasm to bring about this experience of ecstasy as a part of a pagan religious pursuit and experience. Now at the time of Paul's writing, Corinth was filled with priests priestesses, religious prostitutes, soothsayers, diviners of the mystery religions who claim to represent a god or gods, and they claim to have supernatural powers that proved their claims. Now, not surprisingly, some of their dramatic and bizarre practices were being brought into the worship experience of the churches in Corinth, And this is what Paul is bringing to their attention. As a reminder of their past, Paul says, You know how you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led to them. So to be a pagan in Corinth undoubtedly meant... Idolatry. Paul has already dealt with their eating food sacrificed to idols. And he has strictly forbidden it. And in that discussion, Paul reminded them of the truth about what was behind every idol expression. Do you remember? You probably don't. That's why I want to remind you. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Paul's saying idols aren't real. But, this is what Paul says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers and demons. So even though the idols themselves are not real, there is a demonic force behind that idol. And let me ask you this question. Do you think it's possible that when Lucifer sinned and a third of the angels were... ...cast out of heaven and were considered to be demons, do you think any of these demons had the ability to manipulate experience in some form or fashion to mimic or to counterfeit some kind of a miracle? Do you think that's possible? Well, you better believe it's possible. And so this is the problem. The problem is, the Corinthian Christian, who was a part of this ecstatic and enthusiastic experience, brings us into the Christian worship experience because it's normal to them, and because there's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of spiritual gifts, it is opening up the door for all kinds of counterfeit gift experiences that are being ascribed to the Holy Spirit to take place within the life of the church. Now let me say that in a slightly different way. If somebody came into the church, in our church, and they were professing Christians, and we got to know them a little bit, and we began to trust them and believe in them, and they started to do kind of magic stuff, not slide a hand deck of cards, but they were doing things that we couldn't explain and we couldn't begin to understand, if we weren't entrenched in our faith, we might be inclined to say, ooh, that's pretty interesting. I want to learn some more about that. Show me more. Show me more. And this is what's taking place within the church of Corinth. You have these untrained Christians who are mimicking what they've seen in this pagan, idolatrous, mystery religious experience. They're bringing it into the church and nobody has the ability to say, you can't do that. That's not right. This isn't by the Holy Spirit. Paul is challenging them to consider their idolatrous background and those practices with their understanding of what real, true, Christian spiritual gifts are really like. Paul says that in your past, You were led astray to idols. And that is much more strong and powerful than we understand in our own English language. To be led astray was often used of prisoners being taken under armed guard to prison or to execution. It wasn't just being deceived. It was being taken into an idolatrous worship experience. It's a reminder that before a person is saved, he is a captive of Satan and of his own... Depraved nature. For example, we read in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too are formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature Children of wrath, even as the rest. He is spiritually blind and spiritually weak and cannot help being led into idolatry. Paul would say it this way in Titus three: 3 For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Now, these idols that Paul is identifying that were a part of their past, he calls mute. And some translations, if they're older, might use the word dumb. And dumb doesn't mean unintelligent, dumb means. Unable to speak like we would used to say, uh, they're dumb, they don't have the ability to say any words, they're not unintelligent, they just can't speak. So, so no matter how urgently one asked or danced or meditated upon the man-made image, these idols cannot respond to man's needs. By definition, an idol is man-made and impersonal, and these idols are mute. No idol, whether primitive or sophisticated, can answer a person's questions, give him revelation, assure him of faith, forgive him of sin, endow him with dignity, meaning, or peace. The prophet Isaiah would say this all the way back in Isaiah 46, in the height of Israel's idolatry. They lifted it up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. The one may cry to it it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Likewise, Jeremiah would say, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them for they can do no harm nor can they do any good. Paul says that in your former way of life, you were led astray to these mute idols however you were led astray, which indicates that they had no real choice in the matter. There was really no alternative for them. Most people consider themselves to be spiritual. And in that culture, you are going to express your spirituality in one of the dozens of gods or goddesses or temples or mystery religions that were a part of your world, much like today, people say, well, I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in Jesus. I'm spiritual, but I don't necessarily believe in a one true God. I'm spiritual, and so I ascribe my spirituality to the world, to the earth, to nature, to animals, to anything and everyone. I'm just a spiritual being. Well, is there an improper expression of that spirituality? You better believe it. Why do you think our government just passed a $433 billion spending bill to save the planet? Because it's their idol. It's what they worship. They don't know how to express their spirituality in in a correct way. Sadly, many of the Corinthian Christians had fallen back into some of their old idolatrous beliefs and practices. They could no longer distinguish the work of God's Spirit from that of the demonic spirits, perhaps even being brought about in this ecstatic, enthusiastic expression. So this is really, really important. And Paul wants to remind them of their background. And he asks them, number three, to test the results. In testing of these results, Paul is beginning to set the stage for how they are going to evaluate a proper understanding and a proper expression of spiritual gifts. So this verse has numerous possible interpretations, each of which have challenges and difficulties. Verse 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, I make known to you, and it recalls the opening words of verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, but now it's by way of what he has said in verse 2 about a reminder of their idolatrous past. Therefore, because of your idolatrous past that you are potentially bringing into your Christian experience, I do not want you to be unaware about the things of the Spirit. And since you have already known about inspired utterances as pagans, I want to make known to you... And this is what is going to, this is what's going to follow. Now the problem is, specifically here in verse 3, what follows is incredibly difficult to understand. Not so much what Paul says, but why Paul says it. These two statements are polar opposites of one another. One denies the person and the work of Christ. The other affirms the ultimate Christian confession. Jesus is accursed is the epitome of those who deny him and denounce him and reject him. The other is Jesus is Lord, which is central to our confession of faith. So did someone in an ecstatic utterance claim to speak by the Spirit of God or in the Spirit of God and say, Jesus is accursed? How could that possibly be? If that was said, why would Paul have to make that known to them that no one can speak speak such a thing by the Spirit of God? If this is what was said, why did Paul not attack this with greater emphasis and perhaps start his letter with this issue? I can understand that, couldn't you? I cannot believe what I'm hearing, that in your worship experience, in your worship gathering, someone is saying Jesus is accursed. And then going from there, but that's not what Paul did. So, if this is what was said, why did not Paul attack it with greater emphasis, and why did he not introduce it until right here in the context of spiritual gifts? Well, (laughs) the answers aren't so easy. The most prominent options in understanding this verse, and there are many, but the most prominent options are as follows. One, this was actually said as a part of of an inspired utterance in the church. It actually may have been said. It's impossible to know. Everything is really speculative based upon what little there is to know about the house church gatherings Combined with what we know about the Corinthians as a, as a whole and the culture that they lived in, so this is possible since Paul's focus on the abuse of tongues or ecstatic utterances is his focal part focal point in chapter fourteen, and it will bring about the entire discussion related to spiritual gifts. Now the phrase Jesus is accursed was a Jewish understanding based upon Deuteronomy 21, which says anyone who is hanged on a tree is accursed. So they consider, the, the Jews consider the cross to be a tree, therefore Jesus was Accursed in the mind of the Jew. Some speculate that those in Corinth had heard the Jewish phrase but didn't really understand what the word meant and they were using it incorrectly thinking that it was something positive. Now, I have used words that I didn't fully understand the meaning of. I almost did that in my message today and I'm really glad that I looked it up before I used it. But people use words and they don't know the, know the, the real meaning of it. And it's possible that somebody actually said this as a part of an inspired utterance, not understanding what it really meant. If it was said, and for whatever reason it was said, this gives Paul reason for correcting their use of an obsession over tongues or... Inspired utterances. So it's possible that somebody said that. It was a misunderstanding. Maybe they misheard what was said. You really can't know for sure. Second option is that this is a hypothetical statement that Paul is using to contrast their past idol worship experience and their present worship experience As a Christian, much in the same way, you can no longer sit at the table and willingly, knowingly eat food sacrificed to an idol because in doing so, you're participating in that idol. You can't sit at the Lord's table and participate in communion and mix the two together. You can't have it that way. So it's possible that Paul is making a hypothetical statement to contrast past and present experience. This is the kind of thing that those who are inspired by demonic spirits may have said in the pagan settings, and that is what Paul is alluding to, and they may have actually heard this themselves. So it could be that Paul is reminding them of what it is they've heard, in their past idolatrous worship experience and it's a contrast to what they are to hear in their current Christian experience. So it helped them to see the difference between the plurality of spirits and the singular spirit between the inspired utterances of the idolatrous worship and the singular true spirit of God. So if this is what Paul means to bring out, it is not tongues per se that is evidence of the Spirit's activity, but the intelligible, Jesus-exalting content of that activity, which Paul is going to argue very strenuously in chapter chapter 14. So it could be that they are saying gobbledygook that could be construed as Jesus is accursed, and Paul wants to do away with that. He wants to make sure that whatever is said in the worship experience is exalting to Christ and is edifying to the church as a whole. That's pretty much what we're going to be looking at in chapter 14. So however this is understood, the clear principle for the use of spiritual gifts, and most especially the gifts of tongues, is the principle that Jesus is Lord. Testing the results of our spiritual gift usage is rooted in that principle. What we do and why we do it is all under the life changing experience of Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. I have heard people say, well, you know, I'm just happy to serve the Lord, I'm happy to do whatever I can for the Lord. And so they agree to be used in this way. They volunteer for the activity, and they show up, and they do their work, and somebody thanks them, and somebody doesn't thank them. And after a while, they stew on that, and they begin to be reminded that, you know, so-and-so asked me to do that, and I did it, and they never, ever thanked me for that. Huh. I don't like that. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. They must not appreciate me. So the question is, did you do it for the Lord, or did you do it for the person that asked you? Did you do it for the Lord, or did you do it for the event? You see, if you did it for the Lord, it wouldn't matter who knew, who thanked, who was touched, because you're doing it for the Lord. So over the next several weeks, we're going to explore these spiritual gifts and see what they are and how they are to be used under the guiding principle that Jesus is Lord. If we do anything in the church, or because you were asked to do it, and your true and pure motivation isn't for the Lord then it's a misunderstanding of your spiritual gift, and it's a misappropriation of it in your life. It'll be quite challenging as we look at these many, many gifts, and this is a an all-encompassing topic to study and break out in great detail, so I'm not exactly sure how long we'll do that. But the bottom line is this. God has given you a spiritual gift to be used in service to Him, in the church for the purpose of building up the body of Christ or impacting the world. Because Jesus is Lord. The question is, are you doing that? And if so, how well? And if not, why not? And what will it take to change your mind about the way God has gifted you? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for...